wondering where my sermons went or where Saturday morning chill went? Well, sorry, I wasn't really clear about this in every avenue. I figured most of you would find me if you wanted to. But if you are looking for those things, they've just diverged into new podcasts. So you'll have to search iTunes or Spotify for Saved. That'll get you the sermons of Pastor Fisk. And uh, Stop the White Noise with Jonathan and Meredith. That's the Saturday morning show. It is available in audio, again, in Spotify or iTunes. Stop the White Noise and Saved. You should check them out. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. Dr. Kuntz, can you respond to the fairly recent and very popular argument that Western civilization is a bad category, it's bad philosophy of history, that it's it's too broad to just pit East and West against each other? And so um, the classical look at, again, Western civilization is just bad philosophy. Can you respond to that? Yeah, on at least two levels. I think that the presumption behind that question is wrong or, or the assertion that Western civilization is a non-entity is wrong. On a lower level, it's wrong because 
you're denying to people who understood themselves to exist within some kind of unity, the unity that they themselves understood to exist. So if they said they, they lived inside Christendom or they were men of the West or men of Europe, meaning really all the same thing, certainly at one point in history, then you're saying, no, that's fake. Actually, you were just Italians or just Venetians or just patrician Venetians. So there's a unity that's perceived historically by people in its own time, right? There's, you know, there's us and then there's the Turks and the Turks are not us, right? That, that unity is something you're going to find over and over and over again. And therefore to say that, oh no, it's, it's not real historically because really the real thing are these, what you might describe as like nations or ethnicities almost, and there's no reality to this, I think is, it, it, it's just not historically true. On a higher level, there is a refusal, probably for reasons the person is not explaining, to allow yourself to think about things in large categories. And that is, that is a mental tick that most modern people have because we were forbidden those categories except in a certain select amount of narratives and therefore we can't think in those categories. So there are unities, especially enormous historical unities that people in the 19th century see between the behavior of invading what they called Aryan, what we would call Indo-European tribes and the behavior of Greeks in you know, classical civilization. And then the British in the 19th century there are unities perceived in those things because 19th century thinkers all perceive them as, you know, descended from the same stock. Okay. We forbid ourselves those ideas. Now we, we do have trans historical unities. They are usually narratives of who is a victim. But I think the reason that you're forbidden to think in these unifying terms is because unities clarify. And so if you don't have unities, then of course you have no clarity. You see nothing there. And it's not because you don't see it. It's because you don't understand what you're seeing. So the reason maybe to say, well, there's no West and there's no East is so that, you know, Europeans or, or Europeans in contact with non-Europeans generally therefore called whites don't see themselves as any kind of trans-historical unity of any kind. There's, no, there's nothing there, right? So there are, you know, <laughs> you know, white is not a racial category. Therefore, you can't be discriminated against for being white because there's no such thing as white culture, right? But there is black culture, <laughs> right? And there's somehow there's Asian American and Pacific Islander, and that's all one thing, but there's no such thing as white. When you're forbidden a unity, you're forbidden a clarity, and when you're forbidden clarity, you don't know what you're supposed to defend and what you're supposed to not defend. So I think that the idea that East and West are not different has a motivation of ultimately undermining the West. I think the person who's saying that they're not different understands perfectly well that they are, okay? That, you know, uh, Chinese history or Iranian history or Indian civilization are not the same thing as European civilization. The denial of that, I think, even where it is sincere, 
really just has a basic political motivation of undercutting the West. No one is going around saying, no, the Indians don't get to be different from the Chinese. <laughs> what they're saying is the British don't get to be different from the Indians or the British don't get to be different from the Chinese. So deconstruction seems to be a particularly potent tool for using against the, the late modern West. It, it is incredibly potent, and that is why it has been used for a long time, usually just on a philosophical level in our institutions of higher education. But now I see the word deconstruction floating around American evangelicalism in order to undercut inerrancy or opposition to women's ordination, things that really were taken for granted in American evangelicalism 20 years ago, honestly, taken for granted. And maybe that was the problem, but taken for granted. And now I'll see a guy who's self-presenting as an evangelical and he's talking about whatever, how to, you know, how he has grown his church in the past two years, kind of very classic evangelical discussion. And he is talking about platforming diverse voices at his church and how he's the only white male who's a pastor. And, you know, the black female teaches most of the time and deconstruction is used for that. And then also for, okay, this kid grew up in Texas. He was raised with these beliefs. He wants some of them. He wants to leave some of them behind that process of working through what he wants to leave behind is also called deconstruction. And the, the choice of vocabulary, I don't have the genealogy on this. Like, are they getting this straight from Derrida? But <laughs> it is an extremely potent thing to take someone's understandings and to say, here's where they're wrong. Here's where they're not wrong. Leave this, take this here, take this too that I just gave you. And it's now being used really to maintain institutions within evangelicalism while changing what those institutions are for. Yeah, that's good. I, I doubt they're getting it straight from Derrida. Uh, I think it Probably might be not. indirectly. Right. I think Marcuse right. is a pretty important name to throw into that mix. And, um, oh, and I'm going to lose his name. Effective Executive uh, has a little bit to do with this as well, although it's a bit of a tangent there. Um, Marx would also be something that comes comes to mind. Uh, the rise of, of Heidegger... Uh, as what opposition to Marx? I mean, I know National Socialism and Marxism are, are not friends officially, but it seems like well, how do I let me say it differently? Western civilization birthed a lot of bad ideas out of the middle of Germany at the early and and uh, late parts of the last two centuries. Yeah. No. So yeah. So okay. <laughs> I I don't I don't see Marxism and National Socialism as actually a as as really having all that much in common honestly because i don't see them as fundamentally economic realities now i'm driven in that analysis by a guy named john murray cudahy that understands and i think we've talked about him a little bit before that understands marxism strictly speaking as its own as a as a reaction by emancipated jews to the difficulty of integrating with Western civilization. And because they don't really want to on some level, their reaction is to try to deconstruct it. Right. So that's what I'm saying is that deconstruction is the common thread through all of that stuff. In Mar yes, in Marxism. National socialism I see as a as ideologically, as a largely, if not entirely, post-Christian attempt to articulate what Western civilization is. Oh, interesting. Okay. Huh. Okay. So I see it because, because it is a consciously reactionary force. 
Okay, so I'm not even talking about who owns the means of production and how does that get decided, in which case national socialism has a lot in common with Italian fascism. I mean, fascism in it, the strictest sense of the word, but it is largely, if not entirely, post-Christian. So you're trying to say, okay, we have this in common and notice that, therefore, I don't think the move that national socialism is trying to do is really distinct from what the United States is doing in the 20th century not in terms of how you think about whatever Jewish people, but how you think about what constitutes a nation in Western civilization. Okay. And trying to articulate that without the benefit of using Christianity explicitly, because we sort of agree in the United States after world war II to start using this adjective Judeo-Christian that never existed anywhere else before as if our civilization can exist with this sort of vaguely, you know, Protestant Jewish kind of reform Jewish God, I guess, who authorizes certain things. And that's what we all sort of agree upon when we're doing the Pledge of Allegiance or singing the Star Spangled Banner before the World Series. That, that same attempt to exist in Western civilization without being explicitly Christian is being made by all kinds of people in the 19th and 20th centuries. I don't see national socialism in that way as distinct in its philosophical maneuver from a lot of what's happening in the United States, certainly outside the American South in the 20th century, as distinct in that way from Italian fascism or a lot of, I mean, in that way, national socialism is more different from Franco's Spain, where Roman Catholicism is actually essential to the nature of the state than national socialism is from France at the same time or the United States at the same time, which are also trying to articulate, here's what we are, and this is how we relate to the past, but Christianity is not explicitly part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's my understanding that, that deconstruction as a concept, though, is really formulated by Heidegger. Am I, just, am I just wrong in that? Yes, because deconstruction is premised on the analysis, it, both within psychoanalysis in the case of Lacan, and then within philosophy, I guess, if you had to pigeonhole Derrida, but they're, they're interlocutors. So those are both French Jews. They're interlocutor. They're, I think, Sephardic North African Jews, maybe from Algeria originally. Their interlocutors are not directly Germans. Their interlocutors are Americans. Okay. And so the, the issue here is that I, I don't see deconstruction as actually being legitimately sourced out of Heidegger. Okay. Heidegger's, Heidegger's concern. So what I'm saying is I don't agree with the left-wing interpretation of Nietzsche and then Heidegger. I think Nietzsche and Heidegger have a different critique of Western civilization that doesn't, is not trying to deconstruct. They're both saying that we have been asking the wrong questions. They're, they're just taking a different stance on how, how are we going to deal with Plato? Okay. That, that's kind of a classic. It all goes back. It all goes yes. back. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that, and that we're, that we took a wrong turn into an obsession with abstract discussion rather than the investigation of being as such, not that we need to like cut all of this down. Now that is a separate question from a slight, it's a distinct question from Nietzsche's relationship or Heidegger's personal relationship to respectively Lutheran and Roman Catholic Christianity, which they have differing stances toward. But 
that is not the same thing as the left-wing appropriation of Nietzsche and Heidegger as kind of godfathers of deconstruction. Okay. Which I don't think they are. Yeah. Right? yeah because yeah. deconstruction is then deacon. They're not trying to use philosophy as a solvent for, you know, the, the family. Okay. <laughs> deconstruction as used in especially French and American academia at first is a way to dissolve life as we know it on almost any level you can think of, right? That's why you find the same moves that you see in critical race theory, whatever that is, properly speaking, those have been used to undercut, you know, patriarchy, undercut women raising their own children, undercut almost anything you can name in the past 50, 60 years, because it's a technique it's not a coherent philosophical position. It's a way of attacking formerly presumptive institutions and realities and saying, is that really the case? Is that valid? Are you sure about that? How do you know? Isn't this just, you know, your own obsession with power talking? So those kinds, those, that, that approach is really, I think, more of an explicitly left-wing phenomenon. If the left were correct, about Nietzsche and Heidegger, it would not have to suppress knowledge of the large amount of things that they wrote that really don't agree with what the left asserts about, for instance, biological realities. So that's, that's why I think they're wrong and why, I mean, I think, I think national socialism as an, as an ideology not only doesn't really have a unity with Marxism, but along with the state that was promoting it really died that the unity that we can see in the 20th century of thought is not between, you know, Heidegger and then some guy that teaches at Berkeley. It's, you know, kind of Bolshevism and then some guy that can teach that teaches at Berkeley. Right, right, right. Which kind of brings yeah. us back to Marx and then into the Cold War from there. Yes, sir. Although I, I wanted to say, I think this is worth saying, that um, <clears throat> if this were any other show but this show, with any other listeners than our listeners, then we would have been way in the weeds. But I know most of you love that. You love that. Okay, so um, yeah, but let's let's jump back then uh, through all of the uh, the the name alphabet soup yeah. um, to uh, well, how did the Cold War become our framework for understanding who we are? I think that the Cold War became our framework, and we mentioned this a little bit last week with Quigley, and it's there. I think atmospherically, but not you know, logically, it's not an essential part of what he's saying, uh, the Cold War itself. But for most of us, it came about through a combination of news media and then movies. And those of you who are young enough, and, I, and I'm, I'm kind of there. I mean, the Cold War was for me over when I was in kindergarten. So I obviously saw, I saw the movies. I saw the people like worried about Russia. Um, my parents talked about my dad especially talked about, you know, nuclear drills in school to get under his desk. But I never had a lively sense of the Soviet Union as anything except a historical reality. That basic idea that we are distinct from Russia or that, you know, to return to the terms of your earliest question, uh, that the West is distinct from the East. And here's what we're defending and here's what they're defending. And we're defending freedom and they're defending, I don't know, autocracy or communism or something. That, that basic opposition is historically real, 
but also blinding if you don't zoom out far enough. And what I enjoy about Quigley's take on what we would call the Cold War is that he sees it within, I mean, he, he starts with when the people who were called the Rus, that is Vikings from probably like Eastern Sweden, came into the rivers of what is now Russia and the Ukraine, here's what they did. Hmm. And so his bigger picture gives you a different sense of for him what the Soviet Union is. And as we're going to talk about today as well, I think it gives you a much different sense of what the United States is today, because I see elements and he couldn't have in the 1960s because we weren't socially there. I see elements of continuity between us as we now are and Russia, as he describes it in the 19th and then especially the 20th, but even in the 19th century of autocracy and control and the importance of the state. And therefore that the, the nature of where we are, especially in the present day United States, is much farther away from the United States that he's trying to describe in the mid 1960s. We're much farther away from that than <laughs> than we are from, say, Russia in you know 1921. So right. it is remarkable when you pick up tragedy and hope to see certain. He'll just say kind of offhandedly, "This is the way it is," and then you look outside and there's all these people wearing face masks all the time because like the media told them that they needed to, because otherwise somebody was going to die, you know, depending on who you talk to, it's them themselves, or they're trying to protect you or whatever, but their response to propaganda is so much more immediate than, I mean, the world, the America that Quigley describes is to some degree unrecognizable. Yeah, absolutely. Did you see that picture of, I think it's the Secretary of Defense um, walking in front of the troops with their masks on and he's got the mask on and he's got the face. He looks like like Darth Vader. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, So you dropped 1921 as the year to talk about Russia. And yeah. I can't help but notice, well, that's that's a bit after Tsarist Russia, just just a touch there. Yeah, um, the Bolsheviks are kind of there. So was Russia ever the West? Quigley says that it wasn't. Be, and, and that has to do with something that we mentioned last week, that Russia is founded with, he sees it as two different major factors going into the founding of Russia uh, as a historical reality in what we would think of as the very early Middle Ages. One is they get their civilizational forms from Byzantium in, in, in which the state has control over practically every realm of life. That's the way he describes it. I know enough about Byzantine history that that isn't comprehensively true, but it is more basically true than it is in the West, where by distinction, he says, we experienced most of us, especially in Western and Northern and thus also Northwestern, with the British Isles being the source of America in a basic way. We experienced life largely without a state. That is, that is life in Europe after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. We don't really have states. We do have kings. We have feudal lords. We have monasteries. He uses the word society to mean all those portions of life that are not organized as a state in the sense that you could say, here's the state in Japan in the 17th century. Here's the state in the Roman Empire in the first century AD. Europe, Western Europe especially, doesn't really have such a thing. The Russians, even before they exist as a nation, and along with their Christianity, import 
a Byzantine way of existing, which means that everything flows out of the state. The state authorizes life. The West, by distinction, has the historical experience of life without a state to speak of. In addition to that, they have always lived with an aristocracy, a nobility, and thus also generally a monarchy that is in many ways genetically and especially socially distinct from the population it governs. Now, that distance can vary more or less over time, right? So the Mongols, therefore, can come into Russia, govern Russia, (laughs) okay, and the Russians go on existing as as just a, a slave class for completely foreign people. But from the beginning, it's Scandinavians governing Slavs, right? And then, you know, at the time of the First World War, it is a man who is a grandson of Queen Victoria of Great Britain, you know, Empress of India is and is more closely related to his German opponent, you know, William, uh, than he is to any Russians. Okay, but that's, you know, so they have always existed with this state. So everything is top down, life is top down, and then also an autocracy largely of foreign, to some degree, more or less over time, foreign extraction that just kind of governs the population, which is largely agricultural over time. So then this gets into the distinction between Eastern and Western churches too, right? Like that's, that's got to be a big part of this. Yeah, because he sees, and, and I think he's right about this. And obviously, again, all of these things, there are you know, differing events and opinions and stuff over time about how this should be shaped. But the idea that you have a spiritual head of the church, whether you want to say in a, you know, biblically correct way, that is Jesus Christ, who is reigning invisibly at this time, or you want to say in an unbiblical but popular way, it's the Pope of Rome reigning. There's a spiritual head, and then there's a secular head that governs things like military and taxes and roads. And that could be the Duke of Burgundy or the King of Brandenburg or whatever. Okay. That insight is is natural to Western history and, and can actually function without a functioning state. And it is not the case in Eastern history, that in Eastern history, you have not necessarily an all-encompassing spiritual figure identical to the Pope, but you have an all-encompassing spiritual and secular ruler who is the emperor. And so Moscow is going to be announced as a third Rome right? After the second Rome, which was Byzantium, because they have now inherited, and you even see this, I mean, this is playing out right now because of lots of political factors in the Orthodox world in the split that is progressing on all continents, as far as I'm aware, as we record this, between Moscow and the the Patriarch of Constantinople, that Moscow inherits this form of government in which, even if Vladimir Putin doesn't want to particularly go to divine liturgy you know, it is important for the state and the church to be unified. And so the Soviets in that way are a kind of hiatus in a much more natural relationship where the Russian state builds and authorizes the Orthodox church and the Orthodox church spiritually builds and authorizes the Russian state. That would be more historically normal and normative. 
Now, using the word state again, you were distinguishing that from, uh, you know, heads of state as as like a baron or a mayor, that there's this bigger idea um, that you're kind of using that term to right. mean. And I think that's really important. And then uh, coming out of last week's conversation, um, to see that Western man is kind of part of his uniqueness is the value of the individual human, right? And then what that leads into or grows into is a man who needs no state, um, but is in fact ready to be one where he is. Is that, is that fair? I think state and government are not the same thing here. So, so government or self-government or local government or baronial government or whatever form you, you have that, that government exists states do not necessarily exist. Right. So our use of the language of church and state really confuses that quite a bit. It really does. And it presumes that the state is obvious and therefore that the state's prerogatives are obvious. So in connection with what we talked about last week, the idea that you just be like, well, the government said that we had to do this, so we did it. And what they really mean is the state said that we had to do this, so so we have to do it, is... I mean, in the whole scheme of Western history, it's just hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I mean, okay, so the Pope said that you have to do, does that mean you have to do it? Well, no Lutheran is going to say that. But then as soon as some other person who is behaving in essentially the same manner, that is, he's just making it up as he goes along. He's coming up with things and telling you that you have to do them. But since he wasn't in, he wasn't in the church, you just go along with it. Do you not understand that these are the same problem? You know, so what the what the Book of Concord describes as papal slavery, are you so dull that you can't see that that's the same thing that, you know, the Biden administration is attempting to do by means of something that is an executive order that's originally created just to explain to executive agencies how they're supposed to do their jobs? Executive orders aren't supposed to govern daily life, friends, you know, so that I mean that it, it's just there, there's a certain denseness that it takes not to perceive the same kind of government, illegitimate attempted government by an ecclesiastical state, whether what we would call a church body or historically, let's say the papacy. You have to be really dense not to see that that's also a problem in what people might describe as a quote secular part of life. Okay, and that the problem is the same problem of illegitimate attempts at government. A state is a very organized form of government. It may or may not have a bureaucracy, but it has a definite sort of self-perpetuating form. And the idea that that is what authorizes people to do what they do in daily life is simply alien to our civilization. And I agree with Quigley on that. However much you want to distance Russia from us. Right. And my instincts, maybe because I'm not living in 1965, are a little different than Quigley's. And I'm living with a Russia that is seemingly more favorable to Christianity than my own country legally at this point. But however distant you think Russia is, it is alien to our civilization to say that just because someone is in control of anything in church or, quote, state, he can just do whatever he wants. (laughs) That's just that's just that's just patently false historically. And Quigley's saying the reason that 
our instincts are like that. It's not because we're like Americans and we're shooting guns off or something, right? Like some, some caricature of being American that you got from like, you know, um, you know, America, like world police, whatever that South Park movie is that people started saying America from, right? Like you're, you're you're mocking (laughs) your own country and you were taught to mock your own country, your instincts and your country's instincts and your countrymen's instincts on that are much deeper than that although they are part of our heritage as Americans, but they're much deeper than that because guess what friends, we lived both our relatively recent ancestors lived on a frontier in which no one was coming to help you. And long before that we lived in which the Romans were not coming back. No one's going to help you. So if you don't defend yourself or fend for yourself, there's nothing because the state doesn't exist. It has no interest in helping you. That's been our historical experience. People who have that historical experience are much more attached to freedom than people that don't. Even in Russia, Siberians are different from other Russians in that way because they have an experience in the 19th century of settling a frontier. Russia moved east as we moved west and settled a frontier. And that makes a different kind of a person than somebody who stays at home inside the city where it's safe right? And where the state actually exists. So that, I mean, just the idea that you would just let the state do whatever it wants because it said it wanted to do that. It's just, I mean, it's crazy. It's totally crazy. Well, and if you have yeah. some religious doctrine that tells you otherwise, it's even crazy. M- mass formation psychosis. I mean, it, 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 <laughs> yeah. it is hypnotism. I mean, we could say crazy if we want, and it's not untrue, but it is hypnotism. And what hypnotism does is it does make you dull to what's happening to you. It's just an incredibly powerful tool. Um, and again, you go to a little, I don't know about Google search, do a duck, duck, go on that and, and go, go find out a little bit more. But it's, it is um, uh, one of the other more important pieces I've learned about that in this last week is that uh, logic doesn't work on the hypnotized. Fear does. And so, you know, what we want to do in part here, um, is raise your fear factor of those things you should honestly be afraid of, as opposed to, uh, that story, which has caused the hypnosis, which is by and large a boogeyman. Now, I don't know I'm going to do that with this next question, but I I do want to ask this question, um, which is so now distinguish between regime and state for me. Yeah. Regime, uh, the way that we've been using it on here means, both those formal state institutions and processes, such as what is an executive order actually supposed to be doing? And then regime also, I've been using in order to cover both the arbitrariness, but also the the value and the desperate importance of propaganda to our form of state and the people who occupy it. So our state could exist without the regime that we have, which is so heavy on propaganda and connections nurtured by private equity and common investments and having met one another at Harvard Business School. That's part of our regime. Our state could exist without those things, but but functionally doesn't. And our state is what it is really since the Second World War, which is to go back to something we mentioned last week, where I think Quigley is off that somehow our institutions are still protecting what he calls Western civilization in 1965. All right. So then um, I'm just going to go to point five here because I, yeah. I, I feel like um, 
feel like I am lost a little bit. I, you're, you're teaching and I'm learning. And so that makes me not as equipped to, to really say. Um, but well, talk about a time that was society without state or did we just do that? Yeah. I mean, we, we've mentioned it and I, I think that it, it is important to understand that if you're going to take seriously the fact that you have ancestors, you should think about what their daily life was like that even if you live in, say, Brooklyn, New York in 1920, your daily interaction with the American state or with legal regulation of any kind for any part of life is very minimal, even in the nation's largest city at the time, right? And still its largest city. And that you are doing things like probably raising some of your own food in your backyard, especially in Brooklyn or Queens or Staten Island. So when you think about how Americans think about the state or what it is that we're trying to preserve that is obviously not identical to, you know, OSHA regulations, like that's not what it means to be an American is that we follow OSHA regulations. Then you need to take seriously the actual historical experience of your ancestors, right? And their experience was largely of not even having the state know who they were. Just give you a concrete, you know, maybe somewhat humorous example. Maybe I've said this before, and if I have, I'm just getting old, so I'm repeating myself. Is my great uncle, who is still alive, he is my grandmother's youngest brother, was involved in uh, moonshining. Okay, so this is not just sort of a meme. And he said that still in the 1950s and 1960s, something you could do in order to escape detection. So I'm not, you know, not endorsing illegality, blah, 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 standard disclaimer, but something you could do to escape detection was you could just register your car under a made up name with a made up address. And, and the reason you could do that was because you didn't have photo ID. Yeah. <laughs> and no one was checking. So, so you just say, well, this is, this is Bob, you know, this is Bob Q White's, you know, 52 Chevrolet. And, you know, so you hear that you're going to, that your, your camp where you're making shine is going to get raided and you leave the car there and you just, you literally just walk away. And so the only thing that's found there is stuff that you just reckon as a loss and a car registered to somebody named Bob Q White, and you just go find another car. Now, the reason that was possible was because you didn't have photo ID. So you might be concerned about real ID. You might be concerned about digital identity, about vaccine passports. The state already knows what your face looks like. And guess what? Within living memory, it didn't. So the idea that somehow that's like natural or normal or that has to be the case or we shouldn't work to like get to the point where the state doesn't even know what my name is, let alone what my face looks like, let alone is tracking me everywhere I go. You know, you should take seriously the fact that there are people walking around today who remember none of that being the case. You know, no one knew who they were. That's how they lived daily life, except the people around them that they, you know, were actually related to and saw on a daily basis. And there are people who moved here to escape places that were far worse. And, and they'll tell you, um, we're on the path. It, it seems like pie in the sky, though, uh, the idea that you're going to um, roll back the regime and and I'm having I, I see the difference in okay a, a regimes come and go taking power in the state 
yeah. uh, the state can exist without the regime. But mm-hmm. I, I'm har- having trouble really distinguishing between – maybe I'm just trying to define the word state still here as different from, say, nation, um, as different from, say, society, um, as <laughs> different than, say, against civilization. Uh, it's it's a vacuous power, it would seem, and it's it's – You've already said it's not government. Government and state are, are different things. There will always be government. And then, but even the phrase like the three estates, which is a very Lutheran mm-hmm. thing to say, um, yeah. you know, it's got that root sitting there at the bottom of it. So, right. yeah, help me out here still. Yeah, the confusion we're all working with is because most people don't use these terms coherently for their own part, let alone coherently with one another. And so uh, the distinction between government and state is my distinction, unfortunately. Quigley would call really anything that happens that isn't the state society. So culture and religion and art and even to some extent law is society for him because it can all function without a state. So anything that can go on without a formal state structure is for Quigley. If you're reading him or following along or just interested or look it up, that's society. Civilization is bigger than society because you could have you could have French society, you could have Irish society. Those are all parts of Western or European civilization, which, in a very basic sense, is the dual heir of classical antiquity and Christianity. That's just that's the most basic way that he talks about Western civilization. Government is just sort of the power of ruling groups of people and therefore exists in as much as someone is in charge. States are much more formal structures of rule that may or may not exist, right? So government can exist in a tribe, but a state doesn't exist in a tribe. Um, A regime is, I think, an instance within a state's history. Yeah. And so like when, when I have said, you know, oh, America has whatever many number of republics, I think we should be like the French and be honest about it. You could also describe those as simply any number of regimes. So here's the, here's the regime that followed after Lincoln. And here's the regime since the Second World War, et cetera, et cetera. I can't, I, I'm trying to think if I'm missing something. Well, okay, oh, yeah. so go ahead. Estates. The three estates, uh, those are those are what to integrate this with Lutheran theology is difficult because because when Lutherans started to talk about what they originally called the creator's orders, not orders of creation, but the creator's orders, Schöpfersordnungen in German, when they talked about that, they were talking about government, but they were also talking about art. They were talking about a nation as in the sense of an ethnicity in German, a folk. And that was that was actually developed most by a Dane to begin with, Grundtvig. And they were talking about the family. So there were lots of those, the three estates of, of family, government, and then church as a thing that Luther talks about that those are very high order categories and the creator's orders. There were a lot more of them within each of those when the Lutherans began to talk about these things in the 19th century. So the terminology is very confusing. I'm just going to encourage the listeners to stick with us for right now and then try to integrate the terminology as they, as they can. 
the importance of doing all of this is that when you're the, the clearer your terms get, the better you can think. <laughs> That's why the Germans just mishmash the words together, right? So, like the the well, nation state yeah. civilization sort of kind of helps tie it together. Like the, all yeah. those things are kind of in the same boat, although nation can just mean ethnicity, like you pointed out, but it doesn't yeah. anymore. Um, and so we use the word nation to mean the state. We don't use the word state to mean the state, which does the United States, right? Um, but then we open this whole conversation being about what is a civilization is to inherit something that is um, passed down, right? And to some extent, yeah. that's what a, what a state does regime to regime to regime. It, it should. Uh, ours is not doing that. Our regime is not trying to... No, it's trying to destroy the state. Yes. It's trying to destroy the state. It's trying to destroy the nation. Um, It's trying to destroy... I mean, it's identified white males who really are the people who occupy the nation historically as, as, as threats, the major terror threat. So where those terms, even where they don't overlap, so we can distinguish between the nation and an ethnicity... There, is, there are historical relationships here. If America had been founded by men from China, it would be an extremely different place than it was. And so where those things are not identical but interrelated, it is helpful when you distinguish them to see those interrelationships because then you can see, okay, I can't really have an America such as it has been historically, such as it still is constitutionally. I can't have that and have that be occupied by people from Ghana. That's going to be a different country. And that's whatever. Maybe you want that, but just please be honest that that's something different because even where the state and the ethnicity are not the same thing, and that's definitely not the same thing as civilization generally, there are historical interrelationships. And we do have to be honest about that, even though in the case of talking about whites, it all, every people get very awkward about this. And I don't, I know why I'm not stupid, but I don't know why in a logical sense, because I'm not going to move to Ghana and then fill it with a bunch of other white males who were born in Pennsylvania and say that it's still Ghana. Sorry. I'm just, I just, that's obviously not the case. It's not Ghana anymore. If I do that. (laughs) So that's the way it goes. You know, that's just the way it goes. California changed when Anglo-Americans came there and replaced uh, Hispanos as the governing class. It changed. It was a different place. So those, those, are, those are things that Quigley isn't squeamish about, right? And so he'll say, like, it really does matter. We brought up in the case of Russia. It really matters that Russia has always largely been governed by people who understand themselves as sort of foreigners to Russia. That's a big deal. So it's a really big deal if someone governs the United States and looks with total disdain on Missouri or Wyoming <laughs> because they're kind of foreigners to every part of the country that isn't the Northeast or, you know, maybe California. Well, it's it kind of his, it, mythologically, historically developed on a rejection of serfdom. And so to, to not prepped for foreign rule, uh, definitely not prepped right. for it. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, democracies especially are not set up for foreign rule and they are extremely susceptible to foreign. They are, they are susceptible to quick destruction generally. That's just, that's Plato, but they are especially susceptible to destruction by foreigners because when you allow someone who doesn't really buy into this, 
all, all the things that you are seeking to preserve, both the stuff that you've articulated and the stuff that you haven't even bothered to articulate, like you don't regulate people's daily lives. That's just not how we live. Okay. When, when that is the case, okay. You are going to be, because it appears that the people are still governing because elections are still going on. The takeover doesn't even have to happen violently as it might in a monarchy where you do have to replace a very definite sense that these are the people who govern the nation. Well, we, we still get to vote, so we're still governing the nation, right? Well, no, you're not, because your democracy was captured by money, just like Plato said it would be. Okay, so democracy as, and that's why I'm, I'm, not, I'm not personally philosophically wedded to a specific form of government because I see these things as historically very contingent on geography and lots of other things. But the reason I'm not is because I don't identify democracy with Western civilization. It's not a particular form of government or even a particular way of conducting a monarchy is not uniform in Western civilization. I do see it as impossible to have Western civilization without Christianity. And in that, I disagree with Quigley and lots of other people, but I see it as functionally impossible, not just historically, it's weird that we don't do that anymore, but it's impossible. We're now beyond that. And we are moving into a situation where, like you mentioned, I think last week, we're moving into a situation where things that are very basic to Western civilization, such as we don't condone abortion. We, <laughs> that's one way in which we really differ from the Greeks and the Romans that came before us. We don't condone abortion. Well, now we do. Okay. When you see historical changes like that, you have to recognize that they're probably, it's sort of like a pimple. There's some infection underneath that is causing this. This is symptomatic. This isn't just one thing that you change it and then it goes away and then it's done. So let's say, you know, God grant it. Let's say that Roe v. Wade gets overturned sometime this year. There's a lot underneath that also needs to change not just the Supreme Court's opinion about something. Yeah, because it's it's what civilization is theological, like we kind of established yes. last time. And, right. and, and we so have clearly deep. turned a corner. Yes. Our schools right. have taught animals to be barbarians, not right. born men under God to be neighbors. And right. we're we're going to reap that. And the last two years of, of pious self-destruction are going to only fuel that further. Um, so the, the bankruptcy, which has enabled Bolshevikism, as I say that right, uh, Bolshevism, uh, to um, have its free reign among us uh, by narrative myth and story, uh, it was already here. Um, how long? I mean, I'll let you pinpoint that as a historian, but I think where we want to go um, is to see that, that, that we, are, we are becoming uh, what Russia became. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there, there are two ways in which that's true. If you read Quigley's description of Russia in the 19th century, I think you will find astounding parallels with the modern United States, <laughs> which is horrifying because he sees the basic goal of Western civilization, which is not for him the same thing as Russian civilization, as the benefit, not always the enfranchisement or something, but the benefit of the average man because he has unique value in God's eyes. So, because the Russians don't think that way, Quigley says, they are okay with, for instance, economically impoverishing their people 
even while they industrialize in the 19th century, that their people can gain less with the money that they do have now that they actually have some money. They have less, they live less well than their grandfathers did, even though their grandfathers were legally slaves and lived in agricultural communes. In addition to that, Quigley sees that kind of society governed by people largely alien to the people they govern, also given to wild economic swings, but generally resulting in the enrichment of the already rich and the impoverishment of the already poor. That kind of society is given to extremism in every realm of life. And when he you know, said that about, you know, this is, we have all these different people, you know, two different czars get killed in the 19th century. And we have all kinds of people trying to kill all other kinds of people. And we have people who are explicitly nihilists. This is an actually popular philosophy in uh, certain parts of Russia in the 19th century. Just, we don't care about anything. The extremism, like everything is absolute, is an understanding of life in which, and this is, this goes back to his, I think somewhat abstract, but maybe it becomes clearer in this case. When we said that he sees the West as as trying to accept a basic diversity to life, that is things should be allowed and people should be allowed to kind of work themselves out on their own terms. Science needs to pursue empirical observation. Okay. People need to have their own lives. Russia pursues diversity and any diversity has to be reconciled to some overarching unity as state and church need to be reconciled both to the will of the emperor, the will of the czar in a Russian context. Just so philosophically, you need to come up with the right philosophy and then apply it rigorously in every realm of life, right? So they produce, and there are Russians themselves. I mean, Berdyaev, who is a Orthodox theologian, he sees nihilism in Russia as thoroughly Orthodox in a cultural sense, because it says you have to have the right philosophy and then you must sacrifice everything else to it. Okay. You must have the right philosophy about economics and then you can sacrifice human lives to, to Marxism. You have to have this right philosophy and that right philosophy. And then you sacrifice, they're just extreme. Everything is ideologically extreme and everything is explicitly ideological. Nobody's just keeping bees because he likes to keep bees and he likes bees. He's keeping bees because he has a thorough solution to the ills of the Russian soul. And he's going, I mean, they have an, they have a, an explicit back to the land movement, similar to our hippies in the sixties. They do it in the 1860s. So everyone is extreme and ideological. I mean, it's like, that's us with every vegan and Latin mass Catholic and everything. Everything is a cause for us because we don't have any stable way of life. So everything's up in the air and then you have to figure it out and then you have to be convinced and then you have to propagate it and everyone else needs to conform to that idea because we have no stable way of life because we're not allowed to. Everything is subject to potential propaganda. And so we have to explain it all. And, you know, so when someone, I mean, I like to make fun of vegans as much as anybody else, but I don't see their, let's say, evangelistic fervor as all that odd in contemporary America, hmm. people talk that way about lots of things. Mm-hmm. Everything's right? religion. So, but you're saying Everything. that's not just human nature, that that's a particular... That's uh, a particular cultural formation within a culture that is uh, that is in lots of ways 
economic, religiously, politically unstable. Godless. And when you're unstable, you you have to exp- you have to figure out how to get your balance again, right? And so if someone feels like for five seconds he's gotten his balance by doing yoga or becoming Antiochian Orthodox or you know, I mean, I, I see this in young people that have become, you know, confessional Lutherans. It becomes a solution to every problem. And, you know, you will find out eventually from experience of life, no one organization, no one person, no one thinker is going to have every solution that you need, right? When we say sufficiency of scripture, that's a confession of the insufficiency of me or mm-hmm. the Lutheran church you know, as you experience it, that nothing is going to provide every solution. There is, so there's something both understandable, but also sad about that kind of extremism that people manifest, but I see why they have it. And it has this parallel, not so much in officially Soviet Russia, because then the state has made this decision about what ideology will be thoroughly implemented. But prior to that, when there is still debate and you have fervent anarchists and fervent nihilists and fervent Slavophiles and fervent, you know, westernizers and fervent everything, the reason you have that fervency and intensity incoherent and kind of crazy as it often is practically is because you have an underlying, not just a state that is incoherent or incompetent, but in Quigley's terminology, a society a way of living a daily life that is incoherent for people. And so they're clinging to what is going to help them make sense of everything. Yeah. Bankruptcy of humanity and incoherence is exactly right. Um, The weaponization of resentments is your note, but um, as you're talking, you know, and and I don't know that that I'm right at all again um, in saying what I'm about to say, but the information age seems to be something that has exacerbated, amplified, and or allowed this to happen. Uh, it is – we live at a time where what I say I believe is a weapon and that's why I'm not supposed to say it if I'm with someone else who is wanting me to submit to their weapon, which is the right. different piece of information. Yeah. Um, is that, is that fair? And then, and then is it, is it the mass media slash the growth of media presence in our lives that's made this happen here? Could this have not, would America have not been so susceptible to this without the rise of mass media, um, you know, uh, national te- yeah. television networks, uh, Hollywood and, and the like? Yeah. America is uniquely susceptible because of the prevalence of mass media, which is a knock-on effect of our extreme affluence since the Second World War, especially. So we have time and leisure to consume via media that we have been uniquely able to consume, to purchase, and then to listen to or to watch for time out of mind. I mean, you would have to go back to your great-grandparents to get probably to a time in their adult lives, which is pre-TV, let alone pre-radio. And newspapers weren't even comparable because they they could be produced widely enough that you could have you could have an incredible diversity of opinion. 
with newspapers. And that was, if you go back and look at, you know, theologians complaining about people reading the news instead of the Bible, that was sort of bad enough. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but people were reading and you could you could say almost anything you wanted in a newspaper and you could you could find capital to print a newspaper relatively easily. That is not the case for electronic media. And it certainly hasn't been since uh, they started regulating radio. So that is just the nature of the beast. And because we have been uniquely successful, not only in creating, but in propagating mass electronic media, I think we have been uniquely susceptible, especially considering the nature. I mean, the idea that that based on just those two nations' historical experience, that things like you know mass control of people's daily behavior in countries like the United States and Australia, with their levels of frontier experience, is an amazing testament to the power of mass media to affect people's minds and to erase their historical memories which are the basis for their for their countries their nations ways of life that erasure can only take place because of the power of what the media can do and i would say that if marxism has triumphed anywhere it has triumphed in a cultural form in the united states in a way that it did not in soviet russia now there were there were, and especially if you look at the East Germans, there were things that were a lot like cultural Marxism in Warsaw Pact countries during the Cold War. There is nothing on the same scale as what we live with every day. Mm. When there were experiments like this in the very early Soviet Union, especially the first 10 years, the permission of abortion, no-fault divorce, Free, you know, promotion of free love and contraception, you know, this is all kind of 1920s. The Soviets began to walk that back eventually, especially under Stalin. Maybe not because of any deep, you know, ideological, certainly not religious conviction, but basically because it just created chaos. It didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's why, I mean, I said earlier that our regime is trying to destroy our nation because nobody looks at our fertility rates or, marriage rates or the coherence of our households or anything and says, yeah, this is going to work for a while, or this is going to last, or people are really happy, like with just the liquor stores open during lockdown, you know, this is, this is making everyone really happy and they're just flourishing in their daily lives. So that that's one way to recognize that kinds of changes that previously only happened in Soviet Russia and only lasted for a certain amount of time have been carried out systemically over decades among us and also in Europe. And those changes have been much longer lasting. Now, I, I don't say this to say that like Russia made some amazing turn in the 90s and they don't still have, you know, abysmal, you know, abortion rates. This is simply to say that the route that Marxism took in the West was much more indirect and patient but has therefore worked much better than the route of taking over the regime, but not being able to propagandize effectively enough to keep it going, where you think that things that were completely unnatural and strange before mass media are just normal and obvious, which is what they have been able to do to us. Yeah. Every day in North Korea, I'm pretty sure you have to turn on the TV and listen to what they say. 
I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, resentment? Want to hit that? Resentment, resentment is the way that our regime operates because, uh, as we've said many times before, it creates protected classes. And that coalition of protected classes is what gets to govern or at least to support our regime. So it needs to create resentments. The, the most recent you know, dividing line has become vaccinated or unvaccinated. But we see this with race and, and sex and lots of other things. And it has to do this in order to govern because it is a cop, it is a coalition in the case of the Democratic Party very explicitly. But I think this also happens with the Republicans. It's not a philosophical coalition or ideological coalition in the service of the Constitution or something. It's a coalition of interest groups with a common set of resentments or at least a common intersectional target at various times. And that's what enables it to sustain itself, politically speaking. So that is generally the content of our propaganda. So one more question, going kind of back to the the previous episode as well and trying to yes, prep us for going forward. Um, we've, done a, we've done a lot of weeds. I think we have. But it, it's been trying to pin down language that is, frankly, hard to pin down uh, in, in, in the babble we live in. But our goal here is a framework for understanding where we are so we yeah. can see the trajectory and then step off it, at least insofar as we are able and or have the the insight, which includes the detail, uh, to fight back or to counter or to try yeah. to build something new. So yeah. um can you can you take that idea now and and summarize and or run with why we just went through we want what we went through where that puts us uh, in this framework building and then um, you know what we can see from that vantage? Yeah, inside the framework, we are seeing ourselves as in a civilization that that quickly identified as utterly distinct from Russian civilization. That our civilization manifests the nations within our civilization, within, you know, the West or within historically Christian nations manifest now as cannibalistic and resembling to a much greater degree Russia in 1904 than it does to America or New Zealand or France in even 1970. And so that helps us understand, I think, much more where we could go, which is why we talked about, you know, uh, last year, the possibilities of civil war. And we talked about that politically and militarily in Spain, but the nature of the difficulties that we face in the future are enormous because the problems are enormous because they're not merely an issue of this judge is overstepping his limits as a judge or something. We are, we are manifesting symptoms as a civilization reflective not only of a completely different civilization with a very different history in the case of Russia, but also symptomatic of daily instability in people's lives. That is tragic. So within, you know, kind of a bigger framework, that's one way to think about it. It should also, I, I hope, create a great deal of understanding and patience that uh, the listeners have with people who not only aren't listening, but who simply are just manifesting these symptoms in their lives, confusion, desperate attachment to uh, propaganda of all kinds, and to 
walk with those people wisely rather than being dismissive to be productive and constructive rather than deconstructive. Because I think the thing you have to understand is that if you're being governed by people that just so obviously don't care about you, then your life is basically one experience of deconstruction after another. So what you want to provide to people as a friend individually, but certainly collectively as a church, as you know, whatever level you're operating on, you want to provide constructive alternatives for life. Because if I am preparing for one thing, it is not necessarily for our state to disappear. I think that's entirely possible um, in the scheme of things. It's entirely possible that the state will disappear in my lifetime. But I'm preparing for society, as Quigley uses the word, that is for daily life to go on. And I want to construct rather than to tear down simply. And the provision of constructive alternatives is exactly what people will need because the other things on, that they have thought were normal or obvious or natural might be totally unnatural and therefore will fall apart or are being taken away from them. So when I think about it that way, then very practically, I see that if this civilization is to continue, not necessarily the state, not necessarily the nation, but this civilization is to continue, certainly in the place where I live, then it's going to have to continue through constructive alternatives of which I have to be a part. The words of the wise counseled quietly shall be heard above the din of a ruler of fools. Ecclesiastes 9.17, you're listening to A Brief History of Power, you know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here. Thank you.